We made this. Welcome to Life's Milestones, the podcast about weddings, funerals and naming ceremonies here on the We Made This Podcast Network. My name's Mark and I am your host and I am a humanist celebrant. That means that I am accredited by Humanists UK to be able to write and deliver all the ceremonies you need, including namings, weddings and funerals. First up, Happy New Year everyone! And... I'm not going to go into very much detail about anything because, frankly, this is the longest interview I've ever done. I chose my friend Mark Cooper, or Coop as he is known, and he is one of the chattiest men in the world. So I could go into who he is and how we know each other, but we do that in the interview. It is a long one. It's an hour and a half, so strap yourself in. But I tell you what, he is a man who can talk and he has impeccable music taste. Love this guy. I'm sure you're going to love it. Strap in and have a listen to my interview with Mark Cooper. With me at this time is Mark Cooper. Hello, Mark. Hello, hello. How are we doing, sir? First things first, I've always called you Coop. You cool with Coop on the podcast as well, yeah? Much preferred, yeah. Much preferred. All right. Hello, Coop. Hey, Mark. What's going on? <laughs> Welcome to Life's Milestones. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to have some serious conversations, but I also find that a lot of the time they might be a little bit less serious than people might think. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. <laughs> less serious than people would think. I think that's the first chapter in my autobiography. Like. Sounds all right to me. So a <laughs> little bit of a guest profile before we get into the heavy stuff. Okay. First question is, how old are you? Uh, I'm 45. Bloody hell, you're older than I thought you were. I, I appreciate that, sir. <laughs> You've dated, wait, this is off to a fantastic start. Yeah, 40, <laughs> 45, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, the beard covers, covers an enormous part of my face, which hides the fact that I am obviously very old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not the oldest on this podcast. The first guy I had on was um, in his 70s, and he had some fascinating stories. But, yeah, um, but he was he was, he was was ace, <laughs> and he had very interesting and thought-provoking things to say. I, I have none of that, and I look old. Um, so, <laughs> so, so it could be, yeah, it could be a difficult one, this. Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. 45, yeah. All right, so where are you from, and what's your background? Um, I'm from Wallasey, originally. I kind of was all around the Merseyside sort of peninsula. I've kind of been all, all around there and spent most of my life there up until sort of the teen years and then had a bit of wanderlust where I kind of like to travel a lot and, and get myself around the, around the world. And that's what the, the sort of the back end of my teens I did and, and, and being in bands and stuff like that, That's that was kind of my uh, my passport, if you will, like, yeah. Mm. So this is the big one and it is an opportunity to sell your stuff. You know, <laughs> what is it? That you do that makes you interesting. Oh my god, I love Mark's program is is fabulous, and I've listened to a lot of them, and I would suggest going through all of them because they're all different sort of shades. And I've always listened to it, and he asks the same question. He asks the same questions of everybody. That's the, that's the point of the show, and it's hard not to sound like it, like very ego maniacal in it. Like and say, uh, this is why I'm interesting. Is listening uh, seven things why Coop's very interesting. 
<laughs> all, all I ever wanted to be was someone who could at least hold their own in a conversation about various topics and at least have several engaging stories about things. I, I don't know if that makes you interesting, but I think I, I didn't want to be the guy that nodded and went, that that's great. And I didn't want to be the guy that didn't have a, a grasp of something, at least a rudimentary knowledge of a, of a subject that someone was talking about. I, I'm always embarrassed if I don't know kind of a thread of what someone's talking about and at least offer something up to the conversation. And and I've always tried to do that through, throughout my life. And I think that because of that, I've been told, I've been told certainly by the guests I have on my show that I can be engaging and now I'll take it. I think engaging is a polite way of saying interesting because I think if you say interesting, it's too far. It's like yeah. that guy. It's like the guy that says, "I'm the funniest guy in the office." I'm telling you now, you're not the funniest guy in the office if you say that. You know, it's so <laughs> it, it, I, I'll, I'll, engaging. I'll take I, that's the reason I think I'm engaging. People tell me that in some cases, though, I have been, and I'll go all the way to the left on this one. I've been inspirational. That somehow I've g'd them up and made them excited about something, and that's nice too. I don't think I hit that beat too often, but I think occasionally I've come close. You know, my experience of you is very much that even if I'm excited about something, if you're excited about it, I get more excited about it. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, when I first met you, market for those that, that, that maybe don't know. Is uh, is incredibly well thought of within within the business, the business of, of professional wrestling, and and announcing and, 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 and presenting. And I was uh, massively intimidated by that because when I came into professional wrestling, I had a, a fan's knowledge of it, which is not the same as the the, the work in everyday minutiae of it. Uh, what I did know was how to put a show on, how to get a show from A to B, yeah. light. I, I knew that, but I didn't know how to act almost around the talent the wrestlers crew and people and such so i knew by your reputation that you were well thought of and that was my kind of yardstick i was like well how he acts with the talent is pretty much how i should do and i, and I think every so often every so often the veil would lift between us when there was a particular match or a particular thing went really well or there was a really executed piece of business as they we call it we we knew it was special, and we break yeah. for a second. We break character, and and I really enjoyed those moments because, like you say, when you're running like a stage manager or a tour manager or anything like that, normally the guy that's like enjoying themselves and clapping and cheering and stuff, it's a, it's a tell to say that they're not professional within the business. Almost, you're not allowed to almost enjoy what you do. So when those moments happen, it, I, I always found it incredibly refreshing. And that was my first experience with you being massively intimidated. Let me paint you a picture, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm there <laughs> shouting at people, getting crew guys going round and, and all the rest of it and doing the things that you do. And I know Mark's arriving and I play like so, so fucking what. That's how I'm playing it. But it's not the truth. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's really good. He knows what he's doing. He's going he's gonna to be like waiting for me to say something and be like, ha! That's, that's not right. And I'll be like, oh, God, the world will fall apart. Mark comes in, and he'd already been to wardrobe, if you will. So I didn't see him in his civvy gear. I only saw him in his on gear. And he's got a cane <laughs> and this beautiful jacket. And he looks like he's just walked off a backstage interview at ECW or something. And I was and I was like, oh, my God. I, I am done. I, I was like, he's just going to... He's waiting for something for me to say something out of line. And, and, but I think what... We uh, we immediately kind of bonded on was that we were exceptionally professional and wanted to 
how how excited we were we wanted the fans to be and i think that's what was a mm. touchstone for us very much so there's a lot of words that perhaps i would accept to describe me but I've never felt like I've ever been a particularly intimidating person. Oh, no, no, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. There's a different forms of intimidation, by the way. Uh, there's, a nice, <laughs> there's, a, there's a nasty form where it's a big, oppressive character bearing down on you, and that's, like, very frightening. That's one kind, and that's very visible, and, you know, that's fine. And that, we can put that to bed. But there's another intimidation because you have to realise that you, that the person you're dealing with is very good at what they do, and that forces a mirror on yourself to be very good because you're like right i mm. can't get away with anything now because this person's very good and they're committed to doing what they're doing they're 100 involved if i don't give exactly the same and more as what they're doing i'm letting myself down and the intimidation actually comes like a lot of things from within so you feel it because you're like oh hold on now mm. i have to prove that i can do the job and now i have to prove that i are backing up what i say and most of the time intimidation and, and fear gets a bad rep sometimes it's more a case of i was like excited intimidation i was like okay right. this guy's really really good and but if it works well now that's a whole different thing so when mark would come up to me normally a half halfway through a show show would be like an hour and a half and then it'd be a break normally that time we would talk about maybe some tweaks or changes we'd be doing the show or some issues with cameras or whatever if we if, if something went well and you said to me, oh, that went well. I was made up. That was me kind of going from all the way from intimidation to excitement, you know. So mm. it was a weird thing. And, you know, we were we were privy to some very, very fine moments when some very special things happened at a very special time in British wrestling. And, yes. um, yeah, and so that intimidation ebbed away. And then it became a nice admiration. And then what it became then was a realisation that I could rely on you. When you're running a show or you're running any kind of stage or tour or anything, you want to find the people you can just go, listen, I know they're good and I don't have to do or work with them in any way. I just need to give them a few things and off they run. You became that. And then that became one of the pillars that I started to build mm. my knowledge upon. You know. Now, I think this is completely fascinating. And I very much you know, look back on my time in British wrestling as something I'm very, very fond of. I'm no longer really involved at all, but yes. I really do look back on a lot of the memories very, very fondly. But when I first encountered you, it was almost exactly the same vibe. I knew of you with your reputation as or, <laughs> as an events organiser, and I was like, fucking hell, this guy's going to be getting everything right. He's going to be putting everyone in the right place, and I can't wait to learn from him. So it's fascinating, isn't it, that the first time you meet someone... You can't know what they're thinking. No. That's a very human thing to do. The very first thing you do as a human is is you make yourself big and you make yourself threatening or at least not to be messed with. And that's a very human thing. You know, that's probably way that's very sort of you know, prehistoric man thing, I imagine, when two prehistoric males meet, you know, you kind of make yourself <laughs> bigger and, and you try and kind of you know, you have a lot of bluster. And what tends to happen is it either goes one of several ways. You kind of go, okay, you get into a fight about something or, or whatever it may be, uh, or you learn to get on, or you learn an admiration like we have. And what changes that and what decides where that trajectory goes is the experiences that you have together. So yes. it, it, very much on tour or when you work a show, ladies and gentlemen, that is if it goes well, it's probably the worst thing to happen if you want to generate a relationship. It's when it goes badly 
is when you find out who you can count on and people have to remove the the the, the veil and the wall of kind of like I'm yes. big and I'm massive to go I don't know what's happened here what went wrong so you know we talk about the successes but there was a lot of failures where it didn't work and we had mm. to uh, you know disassemble it at the end of a show and me and Mark would have those conversations where you would go okay well that didn't work and and very quickly we realized that being able to say something doesn't work or we didn't have that right or we didn't plan this or it didn't get executed correctly is an incredibly valuable thing to have you know you yeah. get past all the bluster you get past all the thing and you you can start really moving forward then because you're like okay i'm not embarrassed to say this was wrong in front of someone and that's mm-hmm. a real skill i've learned is that if you don't know what you're doing with something and in life if you if you're personally not doing well is to talk about those things it's a massive strength that I've got more admiration for someone who goes, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm willing to learn and apply myself yep. rather than go, I do know what I'm doing when I don't and, and mess everything up. And we've worked with those people that will say they know yep. how to do something and let you down. And that's terrible. Whereas if you just said from the off, I don't know how to do this thing and let's work together. And we had that. So we'd have a couple of shows where things would go wrong and, and all kinds of craziness. And very quickly we would like, disassemble it and go how could we make this better and you know i'm very proud of the things that we did in the, in the promotions that we, we were at where we brought in things like you know tolerance to uh diversity and tolerance uh, against homophobia and racism and we brought yeah. an enormous amount of those things in but they were born from moments where you would go okay we're not doing the best thing that we can do here we need to approach it and that's when real i find real special bonds happen I often say on the show um, that everybody always remembers the bad shows. No one ever remembers the good shows. Remember when everything went well? No. You only ever remember the bad shows because that's when, as a person, as a human being, that's when you grow, and that's when the relationships grow. Couldn't agree more. So I want you, before we go into the, the meat of the podcast, I want you to like tell people about your podcast, tell people about the okay. shows that you've done that you're proud of, that yes. we can kind of, you know, what makes you someone that's... I admire, basically. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, um, well, a lot of people, everybody's doing a podcast now. Everybody is doing one. It's like the, the that analogy of everybody's writing a book and stuff. Everybody's doing a podcast, and they should do. I, 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 don't, I think everybody should attempt it. When I first started my mind's called The Spoken Metal Show, I wanted to talk about something that I liked, and I like metal music and its community and the, and, and the environment and, and, and the underground scene and the indie scene and everything, all the facets of it. So I thought, well, okay, I think I can speak with some gravity about that subject. And, you know, 10 or 15 episodes later, it starts to be a thing, and you get a format with a with a podcast where you, you have moments that you move through, and it has, like, a television program, now we'll go to the news, now we'll go to the weather, whatever. Yeah. And it started to get really uh, a lot of feedback, and a lot of people really liked it, and that was really, really nice. And then it led to me being asked to cover bands and talk to bands and help with their promotion stuff, and that was very kind. And then it... It went up to there's an annual event called Metal to the Masses, which is a way of getting your band to play a very large festival called Bloodstock. And so you would play a series of heats, and then the winners of those heats would, would get a chance to play on a large stage that normally they wouldn't get to play and, and be involved in a lot of things and shake hands with a lot of very important people and really push their band further. And I was the compare of those events. I would do huge bands. And, and very quickly, I became someone that, the metal community, certainly within the Northwest, seek their opinion of, which has surprised mm. me more than anybody. And there was some interesting things that happened, then it started to evolve. So then 
I was involved as being the host of um, a Liverpool Metal Music Conference where we talked about the future of music and talked about how we can help venues and how can we help uh, people uh, uh, in difficult situations come to shows and people who had uh, mental issues and, and what have you come to shows and enjoy shows to, uh, uh, as well as everybody else. And then I got interviewed downstairs. It was a, a, a show and I got interviewed by the, the Liverpool Echo and I explained you know, what I was trying to do with the, the metal conference and the podcast and the, the guy said that what I the, the speech that I gave at the end, he said was very much like a call to arms and he said, now you do realise that people are going to want you to speak actively on things. And and I, and I, and I kind of went from being a guy that kind of talks from the outside about music, oh, this album's good, this album's bad, to someone who's going like, well, no one's doing something about this venue closing. What are you doing about this venue closing? How, mm. do, we, how do we support a local act, Mark? How does a local act get onto playing a larger show? And they would ask me these questions, so they, 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 then the... The podcast started to really develop into that, where I would talk to people within the scene, uh, uh, you know, people from the local council about how we can do that, how you know we can we can help step bands up, and how we can help people who uh, have issues about going to a show, you know, the social side of it and stuff, and and physical contact of shows, and how and, and things mm. like that, and and it became very serious. And one of the, the sort of peaks was it? I was a, a, a one of the metal to the masses shows, and in the interim, it's very hot. So I, you come outside normally to get a breath of fresh air and a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm outside, and a girl comes up to me, and she said, I knew you were hosting the show, and I listened to the podcast. I don't comment on it or anything like that, but I listen to it regularly and avidly. And I came to the show because I knew you were going to be talking and doing some bits and pieces. I w- want to tell you that I'm starting to learn. She wanted to learn country music and sing country music. She was, I'm cool. not now starting to learn and, and, and apply myself to country music. But I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't said, you know, you've got to start, you know, you've got to start this journey, you've got to get be motivated and stuff. And she showed me her arm, which had loads of cuts because she'd been self-harming because she had no her self-worth was completely destroyed. Mm. And I would have never have met her had she not, and I never seen her again. And and that was, and I thought that was quite it. And then I realised that I'm not just playing for me; I'm playing for people who are listening. So there'll be someone listening to my show was I often joke uh, to say saying oh I could do a better podcast about metal than this guy and I'm like go do it then you know it, please yeah. you know, please do it and I realised that you know some people are listening to this uh, my show and certainly they're definitely listening to it on your show at first to be amused and to entertain while they're in work or they're doing the housework or whatever it may be mm. but then they're, they're also actually getting you know enthused to do something where they're going to go, you know, okay, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to learn to play the guitar. I'm going to become a lighting engineer or whatever it may be. And, yeah. and they're learning to do that. So they that became a very, um, it, it meant that even sometimes when I don't want to do the show, because I'm, I have my own demons where I'm like, am I really amusing? Am I entertaining? Do what, what, what I say has got any gravitas? Even then, I'd still do it because I'm like, you've got to listen to your own advice here, and you've got to make a start yeah. and and start. To, I'm a huge champion of of mental awareness and working with that and things like depression and social anxiety and things like that. I'm a huge champion of trying to, you know, to, to make inroads into into the challenge that that proposes to people, and that's where I am now. Where I the the show is on a number of fronts. Some some shows are very amusing, ha ha ha. We we joke and we laugh, and 
And then some shows were very serious. So my friend who brought me into the business and was very much a mentor in every way, a gentleman called Toad was his, his nickname, Toby. And he, he passed away. And I did a show. I did a podcast about it, which was hugely challenging because I was like, yeah. am I doing this? The, the show doesn't cost anything. It's free, but am I exploiting that in some way? And every single person who heard it was like, no, no, no. It's, it was a beautiful way because of COVID. We couldn't go to a funeral to, to see him off. Yeah, and I talked for like an hour about him, and I cried on that show. I, you know, it was a completely open, I, unscripted me just pouring my heart out, and that was one of the shows that had the most feedback. And it, and yeah, it, it's 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 a, it's a cliche, but it's true that if you come from the heart, it will go to the heart. You know, if you do these shows and you don't mean it, people will will find out straight away. It's like if an artist sings a song and doesn't care. You know, yeah, your shows are great because it's obvious that you, the 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 interaction between the the two people is honest and genuine, and that's what I try to do with with my show. You know, um, mm. yes, it I hope it amuses and entertains, but I also hope that someone comes away going, you, know, you know what, I'm going to give it another shot today. You know, I'm going to go and do that one thing today, and um, that's incredibly important and rewarding to me. Mm. I I think you. I mean, fuck the format. We we should be talking about this later on, but I think you've hit on something I really have wanted to talk about on this podcast. Both you and I have lost someone during the time of COVID, weren't able to go to their funeral, and that is such a difficult thing to deal with. I remember watching the funeral on the on the stream, and it didn't feel right. It felt like something but it didn't feel right it's it's because i think one of the one of the challenges is that if you a funeral is is meant to be a a process so it's meant to be a a part of a grieving process and part of a a a way of moving forward with with your life Uh, it's meant to be a part of those like signs of kind of dealing with things. A funeral is part, it's a process, but it's a part of you dealing with something. It's like hear, hearing if someone passed away and you never got the chance to speak to them before they passed away and you had like unfinished business or, 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 or yeah. some argument with them or whatever. That can really gestate and it can really cause a problem that you never got any finality to what was going on. And for me, a, a funeral was... One way of saying goodbye and closing a chapter. Now, one of the, the sort of often tell things about grief is that, you know, that's it, you put it away, and once one's passed away, that's where it goes. And and, and in reality, like, you, you, you look in a way yourself, grief is waves, and all yeah, it yeah. does is just provide you with something to kind of give you some buoyancy if you want a really poor metaphor. As those waves keep coming, she's like, well, okay, at least I paid, paid, paying your respects to someone is, is massively underrated and and i'll explain that slightly i spoke of both my father and my mother's funeral and i didn't want to and i didn't think i was eloquent but i'm so glad i did i don't think it was exactly what how i wanted to say it but i'm so glad i did and in a funeral i went to very recently my cousin was very young and and he didn't he didn't want to speak and i said you must and and i really think that you'll get something from it you don't have to if you don't want to but i think you would get something from it and Mm. It's like, imagine this, uh, to give it a really simple analogy, imagine if you met someone in the street that you were, you, you got on with, and instead of saying goodbye, halfway through the conversation, you just walked off. 
and it, it, it just feels wrong. And that would play on your mind the next day yeah. and the next day and then, until you could resolve that issue. And that unresolvedness is what the COVID not allowing us going to a funeral is. It leaves yeah. it's a hanging note that is unresolved. And and that means that you know you can't properly deal with it. So I, I did the show about the person that I knew that passed away because that was me, what I would have said maybe to other people at the funeral. The other thing yeah. is that social construct that happens of you going to see someone who maybe isn't dealing as well. So when you go to a funeral, there's obviously lots of people there. And I'm very kinetic person, very huggy and stuff. And I yep. couldn't go and hug my auntie or whomever. I hug these people. That's part of the process. But here's the yep. real thing. That's part of the process for them as well. I think mm-hmm. I held my own at most of the funerals that I've been to. I think I've held a, you know, fairly good status because people are also looking to you. I, when my the first funeral I ever went to was a Catholic funeral, so a ground one and lots of you know lots of people, big Irish Catholic funeral. And I was very young. I was about uh, I want to say about nine or ten. I think it was about ten. And my uncle was one of those guys in the family that was funny. He'd done everything. He knew how to do everything. He, could, he knew carpentry. He knew how to fix stuff. He, he knew every well-traveled. And when he, my uncle passed away, who he was best mates with, he was crying and a completely broken man at that funeral. Uh... And I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God. If that broke him, what? Am, where, where am I supposed to be in this? And... I was aware of that when I grew up and I'm in my 40s and I would go to the funerals before COVID and I would see the younger sides of my family. I would make a point of going up and saying, are you okay? You know what I mean? And try and say, you know, that there is, that this is a process. It's part of dealing with grief. It's part of moving forward and kind of help them as best they can because it's a very communal thing. You know, everybody talks about funerals where no one turns up. It's a very sad thing. It's a sad thing because the people around them aren't able to interact with each other and that gives an incredible amount of solace to some people uh certainly mm. did for me i think i you know i work in the industry i made a point very early on in covid of trying to make sure that there was something for people who weren't allowed it's not that they couldn't make weren't allowed to go to a funeral that they wanted to go to mm. i made a big deal of that i would speak to my funeral directors i would speak to my families. I immediately got a friend, fortunately I had a contact who is a videographer, and I immediately got a friend in who would who would record for families in crematoria that don't have streaming facilities. And I would encourage people to use the streaming facilities if the crematorium did have a streaming facility. And that was important to me from the very, very beginning. But... I didn't get a true understanding of how important it was until I lost someone during the time of COVID who I had to be on the opposite side of a funeral for. And I was one of these people that wasn't allowed to go to this funeral because of the number restrictions. And it was something. It was there. It was a help. But it wasn't enough. And I got a greater understanding of exactly what I was doing and what I was providing for people by giving them that option that is okay and is 
something to make a difference, something that will help people. But I mm. just firmly believe that it's good and it's helpful mm. and it's important. But until you can go to funerals as you normally would have done, social distancing was gone. There are going to be a lot of damaged people out there who mm. grieve in a different way. It's harder and it will take longer. And it's fucking frightening. COVID-19 is not the only epidemic. Grief is a massive epidemic yeah. caused by COVID-19 as well. We're now seeing the, the true aftermath of... Because uh, we are... At the, I'd like, I'm always hopeful. I'd like to say that we are at the, the approaching the end of, of this pandemic as, as kind of vaccines and what have you come into to play. But we're going to see the true effect of it, I think, from the detritus and the flotsam and jetsam that comes afterwards... Like uh, I was watching uh, uh, some ec economists on, on various sort of TV shows talking about how the after effect is, is going to be far worse. So people in businesses who businesses failed, who you know, the suicide rate is is going to be much larger. Is the, the so we're already seeing it with with the youth and and the younger generation going to schools and colleges and universities. The the social side of it, they see how they crave because they're social animals at that age. Yes. absolutely. And they're suffering now, and we're seeing that. We're going to this generation that experienced this uh, as a school and university generation. We will see that the beats of this move through at long after this vaccine. You know, in two years' time, we'll be like, "Oh, I've got that COVID. Take a pill and, and away." But the real effects, the internal ones, will be much longer. I remember when my uh, my mum passed away from from cancer, and she was almost more worried about that because she couldn't see it. She said she would prefer it if her leg was cut off because she could see that the leg was cut. She could deal with that. There's a big cut in my leg that I would get. Yeah. Because the cancer was internal, it, it was very hard to get hold of from her from a mental point of view. And that's what depression and, and that type of thing, that's what that is. It's incredibly difficult because it's inside. You don't wear it. If you walk into somewhere and your arm is in a cast, People go, what happened to your arm? Are you all right? You don't do that when you have something that's inside. You can walk through a shop and someone goes, and everybody does this when they see someone for the, uh, they haven't seen for a while. They go, you're all right? And you go, yeah. And everybody just goes, yeah. And yeah. We've, got to turn, we've got to turn the corner. When, when I say to you, are you okay? I mean that if you're not okay, we can have a conversation, and yeah. a non-judgmental conversation where we talk about what's going on. And... It is unbelievable how much of a weight gets lifted by simply working through it. It's like I, like the analogy I give there. It's simply talking about it and seeing it and putting it out in the open is the best sunshine for it. It's, it's fantastic. It's not, you, you Sometimes, not always, but sometimes you realise that there isn't even a problem at all. And how relieving is it when you say to someone, I'm experiencing these thoughts, especially in a funeral, and they go, that's how I feel. And you go, oh, thank God. That you know, at least I'm feeling things that are yeah. you're meant to feel. People think that being sad and, and grieving is is some kind of deficit, is some kind of like bad trait, but it's completely normal. It's completely normal. Yeah. And so you know, we learn to. You're never gonna. You do, it's a coping mechanism. You just learn to put your your hands around and figure it out. For someone like yourself, doing what you do, it, it is absolutely. It's, it's so important as you, as you'll have found out as you the more you've experienced it and certainly from both sides that people will look to you when when this has happened they will look to you to complete the service or whatever the situation is because that's something that they can hold on to 
you know, I every time I've been to a funeral, I, the, the, that's had a priest or a vicar speak, and afterwards I've said, thank you for that, and I mean it. I mean, thank you for at least giving us a, a box we can start to put stuff in to figure this out. Yeah. That's why it's so important what you're doing, because there's people out there that are like, well, I, I don't follow this religion, or I don't believe in this, or I believe in this, or I believe in that. And you give people that that box that they can start filing their grief in and learning to deal with, and it's incredibly important. I really like that metaphor. It's a lovely way of putting it. And I do feel mm. like... <laughs> if we're going to carry on <laughs> with that metaphor, I do feel like I've not been given the right size boxes to right. distribute as a celebrant yeah. this year because of COVID-19. And yeah. what I will say is, though, I have learnt a lot and much mm. quicker than I expected to because of the way I've had to deal with funerals. In my head, I was always going to be a wedding celebrant that did funerals. Yeah. But because of this year, I am now a funeral celebrant. Let, let, let's just be honest. I yeah. All my weddings were postponed till next year. Of course. I haven't done a wedding since January 2020. I... I'm a funeral celebrant. That is all I can be at the moment. And that change of circumstances has almost kind of pushed me to become something quicker that I'm sure I would have eventually become, but it's mm. pushed me to become something quicker because mm. my understanding of grief and funerals and what people want in them has really kind of snowballed quicker than I would ever expected because I was never going to prioritise funerals as part of what I did. And mm. grief is fucking scary. Yeah, it's a waste. Yeah. Massive. I have obviously had grief in my own life, but seeing these people that can't see their friends who are desperate for somebody to talk to, I will have conversations after funerals that about the fella or the lady that mm. I did the, the funeral for with their families. And I can't shake their hand. I can't hug them. But that conversation is at least a start. What was interesting for me uh, when you started, I watched you kind of get involved in this bi business, if you will. Uh, one of the things that I thought was was fantastic is that you were it was a, a funeral celebrant, that it's a celebration. And I thought that that was a wonderful way of seeing it because you can be a funeral director, which sounds very businesslike and very kind of, I'm the guy that moves the, the things along. But I thought that a celebrant is a, is a beautiful way of seeing it. And that was one of the things that helped me grieve a little better and deal with loss a little better is that I seen it as a wonderful celebration. I'm a big fan of turning everything that I see as a negative into a, a positive. I'm a very big fan of, of moving things and, and viewpoints. So when someone passes away for me, I'm like this, look, everybody is going to pass away. This, this look what this person achieved. How fantastic is this? And let's talk about that because we could, you know, we can talk about that forever. Look, look at the monument mm. that they've created. Look at the body of work that they've done. So to celebrate people is fantastic. And I, you know, I, I understand now why there are certain uh, religions that, have very loud funerals and dancing, and, and yeah. I, I, I understand. I get that now. I didn't understand it at first. It seemed very alien to me. I completely understand that, and I think that being a, a celebrant, I think that's the key word. Is that you know celebrating something, being a wedding or being a funeral, 
that's the start of fighting the downside of, of grief and the downside of things. That's the starting point. Is like actually, this is you know it's a terrible thing that that person has passed, but look at everything that they've achieved. You know, it's very easy to run into the cliche of you know the two times you die is that when you actually die and when no one ever mentions your name again. And that's a very easy cliche, mm. but it is very very true. We only have to look at someone famous like Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen passes, and everybody feels this connection to him. And I did a show all about it. But I was very adamant that I wasn't going to do the show about him dying of cancer because to me that was almost kind of well I'm going to go down the road of darkness and and the road of like that's not going to help me it's not going to help him it's not going to help anybody listening so let's switch that and this is based totally on how you approach things and being a celebrant let's celebrate that this is amazing mm. this is look at everything that's created and because of that it helped deal with because one of the biggest one of the things that people don't talk about when they talk about death is the fact that what it does is it puts an immediate mirror up to yourself so you go oh oh hold on so you can't play this game forever oh it will finish oh oh i have to do something in inverted commas of worth i haven't it makes you address your life it makes you address your your romantic life or it makes you address your business life it makes you address it and no one likes that no one likes the big mirror put up against themselves and, and kind of you know after you have to look at it and that's the other real weight of death is that you go oh god or oh, whatever you believe in what, what what do i need to do here now and mm. and that's a hammer blow especially if that person who passes is someone younger than you which i've experienced as well that's a, that's a whole other kind of grief but it, all of them make you look internally and no one ever likes to do that no one ever likes to look internally and do that and realistically, that's that is the key to forming some kind of defense. So not so much defense is probably the wrong word. Some kind of tolerance to grief because grief yeah. sneaks up. It, the, the thing about grief and, and the weight of of loss is that it it sneaks up on you. Two of the ways it can do it. It could be like when you are when you have a, when there's a smell and you, it takes you back to somewhere. If that's attached to that person, that can bring that back. The worst thing I dealt with with the past of my parents was having a dream where i would talk to them and then wake up thinking they were still alive and, and i was shattered by it because you can't get away from it and that's that is the ultimate form of, of my internal dialogue presenting itself and manifesting it as a, as a dream and so i think the the way we deal with it is the first steps is to a celebrate that person and then start honestly reflecting on, on how you're looking at your own life, you know, in an honest and positive way. It's hard, and I think the hardest thing is that people need a starting point. And your show most definitely provides that starting point where people go, you know what, I'm listening to this guy talk about death, and I feel those ways, so maybe I'm not as strange as I think. Maybe these feelings are, yeah. in a, if once were a better word, even normal. And then, okay, well, if it's almost normal, then maybe I can deal with these things, and we demystify the process a, li- a little, a little. Well, I have to say, I've had episodes that have been shorter than 40 minutes when I've actually gone through <laughs> all the questions. I haven't asked you any of the questions yet, Coop. Shall we get on uh, with that? You Fire away, fire away. Let's get started. Okay, now we've started. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, now we... <laughs> What's the record for your show? What's the record? I'll beat that. Probably about an hour and a half, I think. Um... Done and done, sir. Right, okay. <laughs> So, when and where and how were you born? I was born in Wallasey, and what was the name of the uh, 
I can't remember the name of the hospital. All I ever remember about when I was born is that my best friend, the guy called Darren, was born on exactly the same day as me in the same hospital, and then we didn't meet each other for 10 years. Huh. So it was just weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I was born on the, the 31st of August as well. When I was born as well, I had quite severe jaundice, so I was very, very dark-skinned. And when I was... Here's a story for you. So when I was born, my mum was under so much... Uh, I'm the only child, and my mum went through a, quite a painful process for, 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 for being born. And she was under an enormous amount of drugs. This is the way of doing things. And when she didn't even believe she'd had me, it wasn't like a, this time wow. a picture of her holding me. That didn't exist. And at the time, my dad was a firefighter. And you know, talk about like, you know, COVID and social distancing. He comes from a shout in full BA gear, breathing apparatus gear, into the hospital to, to, to hold me. And he's like, you know, no, no like cloths or smock or anything like that. This is 75. This is like... And, he, and, and that's where he helped me. Yeah, but she didn't believe that I'd, I'd even been born, which was crazy. So you said 31st of August. That makes you literally yes. the youngest kid in your year. Did that affect your life in any way? Did it just right. So I, I went to Rock Ferry High, and I was part of an experiment where they... It was the first time in that school, and I believe in any of the schools in that area, where they mixed their boys and girls together. And I believe that this is a sociological experiment that's still being monitored today, kind of what did all those people do and what happened. So we had a whole year of like six formers and what have you that were all male and maybe two or three years. And then my year and my year was the first one where they introduced girls and it was just mayhem. It was mayhem because there's, <laughs> there's fucking there's testosterone flying everywhere. There's fucking... All, all kinds of crazies going because at that age, you know, you the first time you see a, another girl, and you're just like, what? And you, you, your body's going through all crazy changes as you kind of clatter through puberty. And so there was this insane microcosm of what was going on. It was like, you know, for a couple of years while I was there, it was like, and it was a rough school anyway. And it, it, there was lots of fights. I was regularly fighting because. You would get beat up upon, or put, or you would have to beat someone up to prove your worth, and and the girls would do that too. There were some of the most fearsome sort of girl fights that I've ever. Girls fight way worse than men, way worse. Like, <laughs> forget it. A bloke and another bloke, two men will fight, or two teenagers in this case will fight, and there will be a, a fair amount of rules to it. There will be a certain amount of rules to it, believe it or not. Girls. Forget it. I saw girls get chewing gum. I see mates. I see a girl go up, start a fight, turn to a mate who would get a load of chewing gum in her hand, give give it to a friend who would then grab the girl by the hair and put the chewing gum in the hair so the girl would later on have to get the hair. I mean, that premeditation, I'm never getting into any altercation with, with, with the female of the species. I'm not doing that. And it, So what happened is, <laughs> is this really weird thing of we grew up with girls around us, and it was strange. It was very, very strange, and and I believe it was it's it was an experiment that they're still looking at now. I imagine it's someone's job to go where did these people end up, and I think it's weird. I don't. I think I had to go. Oh, I think I had one girlfriend while I was there before I went to to college, and then college was just like everybody was was all all in it together. But Rocky High was in. Um, it was a wild place, a wild place, and it and like I say, having girls there kind of probably made you sped up the maturity a little bit, and probably mm. sped up the 
the you know awareness of the changes going on in your body and and an awareness of of the, the female form and and things like that and 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 a whole different way of fighting and a whole different way of arguing and a whole different way of whole different viewpoint and gangs of girls and what the hell and and fashion you know girls I, I went to school when like the in 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 the late eighties so I seen girls fashion and stuff and and. Fashion seems to become a lot more important, I think, when I was at school because there was girls looking on. So, you know, you, you, blokes didn't care about how they looked. But then when there's girls looking on, there's a bit more of a kind of a need. I, I know there was an incredible weight on what trainers and what, what bag you had and stuff. And it was crazy. You saw uh, some crazy sights then, but it was the first time that they mixed the sexes, uh, which was fascinating. Good grief. I didn't realise it was that late. Here's here's what's interesting. I saw the first time I saw someone who was gay. I saw a gay person because one or two of the lads immediately resonated with why I like what the girls are wearing and I like what the girls I mean, and I prefer to be around the girls. So we saw guys going over and being sitting with the girls and talking about things like and I and I was like wow, you know, this that, that was my first sort of introduction to someone who would later be gay and, uh, and that type of thing because it was the first they were exposed to femininity and exposed to, to that to, to that whole side of things it was fascinating it's fascinating hmm. so, tell me a favorite story about your childhood we had <laughs> we had fights with other schools all the time and uh, <laughs> it would be it would be like it would go round like a friction of kind of electricity through the near the end of the day about two o'clock. Where someone would go, you know, so and so high school is is coming round, and there would literally be a lot of kids coming round, and we would fight all the time. It was always based on fight. But then, as one year transgressed to the next year, and you moved up a year to like you know fourth or fifth form, there would be this kind of passing of the torch of fighting, and. <laughs> And so there was a big behind the quads where we lay these kind of prefabricated huts where you would learn stuff. Behind it was this huge field where you would do your running and what have you. And at the end of the the day, <laughs> like something out of fucking Braveheart, there would be one year one side and one year the other, and they would literally, like a, a modern day wall of death, run at each other and fight. How we knew who was from what year, mainly because they were probably a lot taller. And you would just fight, and it would be like people. Like, it's the closest I would imagine to being in a war. And we fought so at the end of the year. We fought, and this is completely true. But you might not believe me. I swear it's true. We had metalwork class then. It was called like CDT, craft design technology. Yeah, yeah, I remember CDT. We were allowed to. It wasn't like it was frowned upon, or we did it under the counter. We were allowed to make because at the time action movies were de rigueur then. We were allowed to make things like throwing knives and shurikens, and we would throw them. This is completely true at the side of those prefabricated huts from a, quite some distance, and they were thrown at people. People would be throwing them and using handmade knuckle, fashioned knuckle dusters and stuff. It was like a gladiator academy. But yeah, that was, that was a fond memory, but I'd seen some horrific injuries, but the, the teachers didn't care. They were like, oh, what are you making today? I'm making uh, six shurikens. <laughs> I'm like, oh, where you go? <laughs> like, what hell. the hell? It's true. It's completely true. And uh, I, I, I often have a vision of before we went to the fight, people testing out the shurikens on the on 
the doors. You know, oh, look, it's going to the door. That'll do. That works. And I'll use that for the fight later on. Crackers. Absolutely true. It never would never happen now. I wouldn't even get to that no. stage. But yeah, one side of the school would fight the other side of the school. Girls include. Good grief. I'm glad I didn't go to your school. They've, t- they've tore it down now, and I'm not surprised. It's <laughs> that surprise. It's a gladiator academy. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, do you have children yourself? Nope. No, I uh, I kind of... I've been with my missus like 20-plus years, and I, we just kind of got on with things. We just kind of never really felt the need to have or want to have our children. You know, we never, we never really thought about it uh, too much until you until there was lots of children around, and then we were like, do we need to... Do we need to have children? What a weird thing to say. And we were like, I was up on tour and stuff, and and, and you never really have much time. And I, and I think I remember my friend, my best friend, born the same day as me. I remember he he had uh, 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 some children, and he said to me one day, he said, you're no longer the most important person in your life. And I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, you know what? I'm pretty popular with myself, and I quite like <laughs> I don't want to spend all this money on, on a little person. I'd rather spend it on, on, on an amplifier, if I'm honest. And so I just kind of never got around to it. And But I do see the nice side of it. I see, like, I've, I'm godfather to, to several children. And I do see that lovely moment when they look up to you and you, the, you can see there's an admiration and, and, and stuff. And it's nice. And the, uh, and, and I like that. And I, like, I, I spoil all the, the kids in my family. I spoil them rotten when we go to the shop. I'm that uncle that will buy them. The magazine or the Lego. I will. I am that guy. And also because I like, I like video games and stuff like that. Then I'm I'm something of the cool. I'd like to think the cool uncle. So I adore you know being around and treating the, me, me nieces and nephews. I adore it. But it's nice to go. Okay, I've seen the nice side of things. I, it's like having a car and only ever dealing with it when it's sound. Never dealing with it when you have to do the MOT or you have to change the tire. I don't have to change any tires. So <laughs> it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't thinking. I just never got around to it. I just never got around to it, you know. I mean, you're never too old. Do you no. think the ship has sailed or would you, is it something you're thinking about in future that you'd like to have kids? I, I think I talk, I talk, we've talked about adoption and things like that. And I think that's interesting. You know, we've got no problems with that. I think that the, it, it, there's a lot of kids out there who've got it really bad who haven't got parents and, and what have you. And I think that that's, uh, that's a travesty. So, you know, adoption is probably something. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, as long as they the, the the children stay away from the expensive vinyl and the and the expensive guitars, then <laughs> I come across as incredibly material here, aren't I? Like like here's my here's my kid. It matches my couch. No, um, I think it, it, that's possible. Yeah, that's most definitely possible. We're definitely open to 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 the because I think that I've learned some things that would make their life better, and I like helping people. I like helping people who who are maybe not as fortunate as myself. I like doing that. And I suppose taking someone who doesn't have a mother and father or any kind of parental upbringing and giving in them is incredibly important. So, yeah, not totally totally within uh, the realms of possibility. Yeah, so I'm very much on the same kind of vibe with you. I, I'm a scout leader and I love working with kids, mm. but I've never really wanted them. But people ask me, do you regret it? And I'm like, maybe. Ah, yes. Maybe with a different partner, maybe with a different situation, maybe with a different 30s, to be honest with you. But no, I don't feel like I do. Do you think that that's a similar thing for you? You get that question, don't you? Like, I'm from Irish 
family, and so there's there's a, the, you know Catholics as well, where there's lots of kids, you know, lot families of five, six, seven, and at first, I shun conventions. I, I really like to. I don't. If someone tells me I can't do something, I often gravitate to that thing because I I like to do that. And it, but it's the same with it's the same with those conventions. So when I first, you know, it took me a while to pr- get a proper girlfriend, so to speak. And I know that my, my dad must have thought that I was. He kept saying to me, working class dad, he was like, you know, I just want to make sure you weren't gay. Like, that's a bad thing, you know. But it, it's the same with, like, having kids. Like, shouldn't you be having kids by now? Why haven't you got kids? Like, that. Like the, mm. there's some kind of set of conditions or a flowchart to it. It's like, why have you got kids? Settle down. Settle down. That's a terrible thing to say to someone. Are you? Why have you got a, a job? Why haven't you bought your house? Why haven't you got your car? And then you're dead. And it's like, well, there is other pathways here. You know, it's like it's not a negative. You just—it's the same reason why you know I, maybe I I don't choose to eat meat. Then you just you just navigating different paths. You know, I just yeah. didn't do that. I have it every time I have big family get-togethers where they're like, you know, oh, you have thoughts about kids yourself, and you're like, isn't that a weird question? I don't go to them and say, you know, uh, why did you have kids then? Same question, you know, and it's like it's weird. I, it must be interesting for yourself, you know, because then. Did that kind of come into your sexuality then? Whether you were like, you know, you, how, 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 which sort of format did that go? Well, how did that become where it's like, would they go? Because people see that, that's the other thing that really, really works me back up is that people see someone who is like a gay couple uh, and they get their back gets up if they adopt a kid and stuff. And it's maddening. It's like, you know, you do realize that love is 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 all encompassing it doesn't matter who, yeah. as long as that person's getting love and, and interaction it's all it's all good um so that must have come up with with yourself then did that come up at all you must have heard, you must have met some bigots so i mean this isn't my interview but i will answer your question um i felt like there's a pressure on the siblings of gay people to have kids that there might be less pressure were their sibling able to um, biologically right. have children. And right. I didn't like that pressure being put on my brother. Yeah. And I don't feel like it was deliberate by my folks. It certainly wasn't deliberate by me. Mm. But there was that pressure. And yeah. on the flip side of that, there was almost a guilt that I couldn't Mm-mm. provide kids, you know, or grandkids... Yeah. And the guilt of not being able to do that, plus the pressure that it had put onto my brother. But um, that isn't the world we live in anymore. You and I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and we're both Generation X. And a lot of those pressures, I feel, are generated and perpetuated by the boomer generation. I don't Mm. feel like Gen Xers and millennials are like that anymore. I 100% agree. Yeah, I think that now we are seeing that kind of... And those conventions are dying now. You know, what a what a family unit looks like now is now, you know, hopefully fallen by the wayside where all we care about now is how is that person being brought up and what are those values that that person is being instilled with? You know, because mm. you can come from what's considered conventional modern families and grow up to be a horrible person. You know what I mean? It's It's all about the actual... The love and instruction, the the, the silver bullet that, that solves most of the world's problems is a family unit, a caring family unit, and education that that solves an enormous amount of problems. We don't get bigots if someone's brought up to understand the people of different racial types 
uh, are not the enemy. There's no there's, there's no issues here. Yeah. You know, people who have different sexual orientations aren't in some way a lesser a person. You know, we're we're already seeing that now. Don't get me wrong. There's still people uh, kicking off because there's a black family represented on a supermarket commercial, and and uh, you know you still you're still going to get that. And it's like these people. Have you seen the other commercial? There's a family of carrots. How are you? You know, it's like uh, it's madness and. But we, every so often it rears its, its ugly head. But the reason that that happens is because this is very much ingrained from them when they were kids. And that's very difficult to shrug off. In some cases, the only way to do that is that person, you know, dies and, 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 and that's where it dies. You know, somehow that's, that, that's how that, that cultural shift has to go on. But if that whole family is believing that, they passed it on to their kids as well. And hate, hate, hate is taught. Racism is taught. Homophobia so. is is taught. It's instilled that it's somehow wrong. I'm old enough to remember a time where, you know, someone would be it was gay. It was it was it was a derogatory term to call that to them, yeah, and it was yeah. insane. Uh, but I don't necessarily hold those people to account totally because that's hundreds of years of them being told that that's the wrong thing. And I think that we are moving in the right direction. With with the movements that are going on, but every so often you see a little spike, don't you? Where someone goes, "Oh, I don't like a black family being represented on the supermarket," or "This person doesn't represent this." Or the classic argument that these people give is they want everything to be to they use the everything to be equal arguments. So they're like, "Well, we want everything to be equal." So there's there's a black pride movement. Why isn't there a white pride movement? Or there's a, a gay pride festival. Why isn't there a straight pride festival? And it's like. Stop! Just stop. And when you go to the doctors, yeah. the doctor, you do to the doctor. You go, doctor, my arm's really hurting me. And he goes, right. Well, we'll start with your leg. It, it doesn't work like that. You, you go to the problem. You deal with that <laughs> issue. <laughs> and then, you know, you don't go right. Well, your arms hurting, but listen, you know, all the body parts matter. So let's have a look at your toes first, and I'll just yeah, check your prostate. Yeah. You're like, what the fuck? It's his arm. So we need to deal with these things and, and, and put them on, on on front street. Like, and that's why conversations like this are important to talk about it because the first barrier is people don't want to talk about it. Mm. So from everything you've said, you sound like you'd make a fucking perfect dad, as far as I'm concerned. But I think, <laughs> but I think it's actually okay to be comfortable being an uncle, being a godparent or guide parent, yeah. and yeah. being a positive influence or scout leader in my case I suppose but being yeah. a positive influence on young people you don't necessarily have to be a dad don't get me wrong like there's been several mentors in my life and that's what a, a parent should be they should be that mentor and protector where all the shit that they learnt and all the mistakes that they learnt and, and, and figured out that they pass on to you so it's like okay I don't have to do all that bad stuff or at least I can know how to deal with it when that bad stuff comes up my dad wasn't the initially in the beginning part of his life maybe wasn't that great a person you know deal with alcoholism and dealt with you know maybe not being a, a great person but what i was at the pleasure of seeing is seeing the other side of his life when he got hold of his demons and learned to deal with them and and so i saw both sides i saw the really bad side where i was like oh i'm not going to be like that i'm not going to do that i'm definitely not going to be like that but then i also saw this wonderful catharsism of him Fix trying to spend the basically the back half of his life fixing all the things that he sorted out to, uh, and kind of get get a hold of things. So in the end, when he passed away, he'd fixed all his bridges. He'd done the things that he wants to do with his life, 
and it was it was beautiful and that's incredibly empowering and then someone like toad who, who was a mentor to me taught me a whole bunch of other lessons you know and so that parent figure isn't always the parent, you know not sometimes mm. necessarily it could be a teacher it could be a scout leader i was in the scouts and i had a scout leader and that's how i know how to do various things as simple as it sounds like how to properly make a campfire how to properly set up a tent how to properly read terrain how to read a map how to read a map i was going through germany and uh this phone service went throughout and i had to get a map out the glove compartment and i used all the scales to work out how long it would get there on a piece of paper i got that from rewind 25 years before being a scout leader explaining to me the the, the, the importance of self-reliance, the importance of being able to uh, approach something analytically and keep you calm. And I only, it's only now saying that out loud that I realised that I got that. The, mm. the young people are massive sponges. They will take something from everywhere. The danger is that they take it from something that's not actually there. And by that, I mean, instead of a father, mother figure, scout leader, or auntie, uncle, or whatever, they get it from the internet and mm. they get it from television and the media and that's dangerous to re you know that's the, the the biggest battle is that you know that we face is that people think that their self-worth is digital and it isn't and so we're, we're now the, the the dangerous thing that we brought uh, and injected into society now is the internet and uh you know this is how you should look this is what you you sh- if you don't receive this amount of likes if you, yeah. if if you it, and and that's very very dangerous. We didn't see this enemy coming as well. We didn't see this enemy coming. We let television into our house and then we let the internet into the house, and we never properly vetted it. And now it's 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 bitters. So now people think that they're not worth something because they can see someone on the internet doing that thing that they're doing much better, and we, we've eroded that. So they're getting their icons and they're getting their mentor figures from people who aren't real. That their front of house looks great, but their back of house is awful. And so these very famous people, uh, you know, only show the good things. So I got to see my dad at his best and his worst. I got to see my uncle cry at a funeral, as well as being the funniest guy in the room. And I got to see that, and that creates a wonderful balance to say it's yeah. okay to fail, it's okay to look bad, it's okay to not follow convention, it's okay to be honest, and it's okay to open up. And we're training a whole generation to say that that's not okay. You know, suicide is amongst teens and young adults is sky high. And that's because of the mental figures that they're getting are false. They're false people. They're false idols. They're not, it's not true. You're only seeing the, the best thing. You know, I could edit together a whole thing of me being looking amazing. And that's all you would see. And in reality, there's a load of other things going on in the background, you know, and and they don't see them. And that's incredibly dangerous, I feel. I think you're right. Before we move on to weddings, I do want to very briefly touch on the idea of naming ceremonies. What do you think about celebrating a birth and bringing a new life into the world? Do you like christenings? Do you like naming ceremonies? Have you been to a humanist naming ceremony? I haven't. I've seen one online. When I, before I came on the show, I listened to a lot of the shows, and I would suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that you also do, because, the, like I said, there's very different shades. Everyone's got different opinions, which is fabulous. And I saw some of these naming ceremonies, and what I liked, I liked the fact that you could... It's incredibly customizable. Mm-hmm. You can really do what you want. And I, lo- I thought that was fabulous, because what put me off getting married, and it took me 10 years to get married, not because I didn't want to, but because I didn't feel a connection with 
a church and and, and the conventions and, and the, the way you're meant to do it. I didn't I didn't feel like that was representing me at all. You know, like most people, I shift my beliefs. Sometimes I'm agnostic. Sometimes I'm atheist. Sometimes I shift and move with them as things happen to me in my life. Mm. And I didn't like the fact that it, this is how a wedding goes. Up, 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 up. I didn't like that. And that's probably one of the reasons I shied away from it. And one of the things I like about the naming ceremonies is that you can do what you want. And that's brilliant. It's like when I have a party. Yeah. All, you re- all you require for a party is some music, some people, and some food, and a place. And then, fuck it, that's, you just get on with it. And sometimes there's a slow dance, and sometimes there's a bit where you eat. But basically, you do what you want. And I love them. The thing I love about weddings is not the wedding. I don't really care for that. I love the after. I love when everybody meets and gets drunk. I think it's fabulous because anything can happen. <laughs> and and the naming ceremonies, I really like that. I suppose there's a uh, a yin to this yang is that um, when you have the gender reveals, and that's something that's come from the internet. And I don't know how much I, I, I like that. I suppose you know, it's it. I've been to a few of them and they're very interesting. But I think we're celebrating the wrong thing there, aren't we? Mm. What, what, it's like saying one's bad and what isn't. It's like say it's like a it's like a pot prize. Oh, what what what's the prize? Oh, you've got a boy. Sorry. You know, oh, you got a girl. Sorry. Yes. No. It's like yeah. Yeah, you, you're having a baby. That's that's it. You've already won. It's mm. it's already. You know, why are we celebrating which gender? I don't understand. You know, it doesn't 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 matter. Just healthy baby, top of the shop, sound. You know what I mean? Because yeah, it, it it just seems odd to celebrate that, and I can't get away from the fact that those people that cause those fires. In the states, we're doing a gender reveal. I think that taints the whole process for me. I think that's probably why I don't like it. But the name ones, I think, are ace. I think, are, I think, are fabulous because it's so customizable. You often talk on your the, the, your social media feeds is you talk about what they want. I go to see them. We talk about what they want, and we put together. I think that's brilliant. I love the fact that it's mm. customizable and interchangeable with what that person believes. And what that person you know wants to represent, and and you just go okay, well we here's here's some framework and let's let's move that that way. And so yeah. I think they're, I think they're fabulous. I think it's a great idea, and it's a wonderful. You, know, you should celebrate someone's birth, of course you should. Yeah, everybody like there's a lot of people out there that will be like, well, there's you know a billion people, two billion people on the world, so an extra life is dead easy to create, dead easy to take out. There's no human worth, and you could go down that route. You know, it's like the average human body's worth like 60, 70 pounds on the black market for organs. Bloody hell. We could go down that route. But let's not. Let's set the bar really high. Like Mm. everybody born could be a leader of a country. Everybody born could create the cure for cancer. Everybody born could change the world. Why not? Why not give everybody a zero and so they can start and do what they want rather than say, you know, well, we're not going to celebrate. We're not going to do a Christmas. We're just going to have the baby and then bring it home. It's like, well, let's set the bar really high. If they fuck it up, sound, but let's set it really high. You know, I always, whenever I hear about anybody passing away that's young or a baby or someone very, very young, I always think to myself, what could they have done? They could have changed the world. And it only takes one or two people to do so. Yeah. All right, let's move on and talk about weddings. We know you're married because you just said so. So tell me about your wedding day. (laughs) So, so I um, had some convention, so I didn't want to go to a church. So we had it in Liso Castle because, you know, once you get married in a castle, castles are ace. Nice. 
didn't want to have the whole cinemary thing. So we, it was very kind of like, let's do the some of the things we like about weddings. So we like a dress. That's great. We like to dress up. We like that. We like to bring it down the aisle. And so those things are great. So the, the, the Mrs. Isle boy can, can, can do that. We like that. We think that's ace. But then I was like, where, where it first started getting kind of, I'd like to change things was what music we would get played. So the, the, the lady came round and we talked about what we wanted to do. And we were made in like a, like a quite a large hall as part of it. And she was like, okay, so what music do you, does the wife want to come down the aisle to? And there was much debate. I'm from a music family. So this was a much hotly debated thing. It went everything from bring your daughter to the slaughter <laughs> from Iron Maiden nice. uh, to, 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 to various things. Uh, but what we settled on, was uh, the final countdown by Europe? Um, because a lot of people, Brilliant. a lot of people wanted us to like. When are you getting married? When are you getting married? And we're like, okay, now get married. What's interesting about that though is that the final countdown doesn't begin with the the famous melody. It doesn't begin with that. It no. begins if you go and listen to it now. Uh, it begins with this weird discordant keyboard noise, like wow, very kind of sci-fi. Yeah, it's very sci-fi. And you imagine the crowd, because that's how I see it as a crowd. How, how incredible, eager, maniacal is that? The people yeah. gathered to, for, at the wedding were were vast mix of age ranges, mostly the older end of the spectrum, aunties, uncles, whatever. So when that come on, they all looked at each other like, what has Coop done here? What is he doing? Why, why is this playing? Until, boom, the melody hits and the doors open and there's my wife looking, you know, just, you know, as, as beautiful as ever. So she comes down the aisle. We wrote our own vows and stuff and, and, and that type of thing. And I was all I was nervous about was that it would I, I would do something wrong. I don't know why you would do that. Yeah, like, I don't know, say no or something. I don't know. And you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why I was getting it wrong. And then it was a very subdued service in so much it was like a bit like an arch and what have you. And then when we got married, and you don't know if you could have done this in a church, you probably could have got the organist. I probably could tip the organist to do it, but I don't think you could have done it. Coming down the aisle, we got we come down the aisle as man and wife to Highway to Hell by ACDC. And you think that's that that's a strong message that is. So uh, and and then and then everybody kind of moved. We kept everybody in the in, in the castle, and everybody moved to the main hall, and then. They, they were talking talking about conventions. They were talking about how you you know the best man speaks, then the father of the bride and blah. blah. Conventions dictates that the the groom speaks first, I think, then the the best man, and then the the father of the bride because it's meant to be like the the, the groom doesn't know what to say. He's a bit nervous. Thanks everybody. The best man tells some yeah. jokes like lives are real, and the old boy put sends it home with a lovely story about his daughter. I actually said, this is how, anybody that's listening thinking, this group seems like quite a nice guy. This is how, how self-absorbed I am. And the guy comes up and goes, so the first bit, you'll be the first person to speak. And I was like, oh, I, like that. I was oh, I'm headlining my own show. I treat it like a fucking rock show. I was like, I'm the last talking. I was like, so yeah, sure enough, I did. And it, and, and it was beautiful, though, because it's, there was two people who couldn't be there because at the time my father had passed away and my auntie Shirley had passed away. And we kept mm. their seats. And we kept like some flowers on their seats and what have you. And That's lovely. I didn't think it would mean as much as it did. I knew it would. I, I did know it, it would. But when you actually realise that you are now married, which I took incredibly seriously and still do, it was pretty, pretty massive. And then everybody went and we paid for a lavish sort of spread and fantastic music and what have you. We went away to take photos because Lisa was very beautiful. It was in the summer. It was very beautiful. Uh, and we went out to take a whole load of photos for like several hours 
So we come back knackered from exposure and being out there. That's a great photo. Come back. And everybody's drunk and, and eating everything. And I'm like, and so I didn't really get drunk. And you don't get drunk at your own wedding as well. You, people come up and go, oh, here's your drink and here's a pint. And you have a little sip and then say, okay, quick, come, come and meet so-and-so. And you like you put your pipe down and you, you're over here. You leave a ton of pints everywhere. You never actually get drunk. And And so then we had like the first dance which was uh, to uh, stand by me, Benny King, because Lovely. some things I was like, let's have something nice. But then we had the, the second dance was Blind Melons, No Rain, just to, <laughs> just to throw it up there. And it's like, it didn't really hit until about two or three days later. <laughs> and we had an argument. This is what they don't tell you. So a couple of days after the wedding, and the wedding was great, you know, but there was a couple of fallouts from it. People had argued about stuff and all little things. And me and the wife were arguing. And normally, being the, the terrible person that I am, I would shout something and say, oh, I'm fucking going. I'm seeing you later. I'm off. And I realized I didn't have that in the bag anymore because we're married. I'd have to fill out quite a large amount of legal paperwork to, 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 to get out of an argument. So now I was like, okay, actually, we're both in this together now. And these problems are going to be dealt with together. And once you realize that you're on the same side and you, you, you're really in this for the long haul, all the big problems just disappear because you've got someone to your side with you. And then the other thing you find is that when something great happens, is how you know you're in love, is that when great things happen, you just look to that other person to know that you're sharing that moment together. Uh, that includes the bad, but definitely when great things happen, like, if I was on tour and I was at a great show, the first thing I wanted to do was tell my wife about how great it was. You mm. know, so that's how you, that's how you knew I'd, I'd married the right person. But, yeah, I, I hugely enjoyed my wedding. It was a good chance to get everybody together that normally wouldn't be in the same room. So I made a very strong effort to get people who had arguments, families who had arguments, together. So the weeks beforehand, I was like, you've got to go and say hello to this person. You've got to talk to that person. I used the fact that my father had passed away and my auntie had passed away to say that life is very short. And I used that to say, listen, this wedding's coming up now. You need to go and say and put your things to bed with that person and, and move forward. Uh, I used the wedding to do that because I'd seen my father do the same thing before he passed away to try and get everything you know, sorted or at least get some people to move forward with their lives so yeah the wedding was fantastic very very fond memories very fond memories of that and it should be everybody's wedding should be amazing couldn't agree more so did you use a priest or a celebrant or was it just a registrar it was just a registrar and um, because we I, I kind of felt as though if i got a priest he'd be like you'd get into that conversation he'd be like well you need to go to the church for a couple of weeks before the the show if you will the, the wedding and I was like, I don't go anyway. So I'm, I'm really just lying to you, aren't I? I'm just not, mm. you know, I'm not. Really, if, if, if I believed in doing that, I would, I would wholeheartedly do that. But I'm not. And so, why, why would we do that? You know, why do that? So, yeah, we got a registrar instead because it was just like you say. You know, everything should be put together to represent you. And if you're not happy with that or comfortable with that, then you shouldn't do that. And, and for me, that's how I approached it. Um, mm. I was like. I don't. I think getting a priest in is the difficulty with funerals. Sometimes is that the the priest requires stuff. You have to go 
talk to them and stuff and, and that type of thing. And some people enjoy that process. But I thought that if you don't believe in God or if you don't, or you're not a very or practicing in Christianity or Catholicism, then that's going to come across really disingenuous, you know. And I didn't want to have that conversation. I was like, you know what? I think it's much better if I just, we do the registrar and have the trappings that we enjoy from a wedding, the mm. things that we enjoy. And that would, that makes it then unique to us. What's funny is though, after you have your wedding, you suddenly view everybody else's weddings differently and you balance them. I'll spill some tea on this one. You definitely look at everybody's wedding and balance it against yours. And I've been to weddings where I've been like, wasn't as good as mine. In my mind, I'm not, I'm not a monster. <laughs> but you do, you balance it against them. You're like, you view it entirely differently, entirely differently. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm quite like that in some ways. I was always like this as a wrestling ring announcer. If I went to a wrestling show and the ring announcer wasn't as good as me, I'd I'd get the hump. They should be using me. (laughs) I go to a fucking wedding and the celebrant (laughs) or the priest ain't any good. I'm like, why the bloody hell aren't they using me? They know me. Yeah, Yeah. it's weird, isn't it? When you go, like when I went to that that funeral, it was it was a cremation, one of them, and the guy told me he had like twenty funerals that day. He was doing. Think about that because of COVID, twenty he was doing. 20 i won't take more than one and i thought to myself well, at what point do you start to phone it in a bit then do you know what i mean I, I wonder if that goes on and i hope it doesn't but you can't you should only do maybe two i think because you've got to make it you've got to it's all about that whole moment you know and and so it, i've never seen a priest phone it in or have been aware that someone's phoned it in or a scene of Vickers phone in. I've seen her at a christening once, I saw a christening once where the guy clearly didn't know, even know the people he was christening. And isn't it the worst when you go to something in a church and the organist is rubbish and they play the wrong notes and stuff? And Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. Although, interestingly enough, when my grandfather passed away, he had throat cancer. And so he had to have like one of those things, the voice box things. The yes, thing yes. Yeah. And he passed away from that. But at the funeral... He wanted to have Elvis played the song The Wonder of You. Brilliant. Perfect. And the first line of that song, the first line of the song is when no one else can understand you. And obviously that was my nan could understand him even when other people couldn't. And that was why that song was special. Hmm. But this was at a time when CDs had just become prevalent and it wasn't all streamed. So the way you played the music, go get cremated, was uh, the CD would go in and someone would press a button. Oh, yeah. And someone would have to cut up, make that CD. And the person who made that CD didn't do a very good job and they must have burned her at the wrong levels. So sure enough, the music comes on, this lovely orchestral thing of Elvis, and he's like, well, no one else would understand me or could understand me. And then the CD starts skipping. Um. And it's the music as he's getting cremated. And at first... At first, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Then everybody starts laughing together. Mm. And my grandfather was was a joker. And I, I'm here to tell you, he would have adored that. And I'm telling that story now when I maybe wouldn't have had any stories about that. Oh, and I remember that. That was a pleasant way of reminding us. The last thing it was was that CD skip into an Elvis song. You must see some stuff. And you must be able to tell when someone's phoning it in. But they're just reading yeah. from a prepared script that they don't give a fuck and they're just getting through it to get to the next one like and that just that's awful that that's awful when that happens like you know i would quit and do another job Mm. where it was okay to phone it in if i became that and i never will 
Of course, if you didn't mean it. Mark, ladies and gentlemen, is incredibly tough on himself. We were doing um, some stuff on commentary. And I remember I was like, well, we need to put them in the business, put someone over us talking favorably about someone so the crowd will eventually like them. And Mark did some stuff at the beginning. And I remember him being absolutely mortified at half time when I came to him and said, how do we get on? You went, I forgot to say this and I forgot to mention that this is, he's his brother or whatever it is and made the storyline better. And you were absolutely distraught about it. And I remember mm. thinking, he's really attacking this. He's really totally... And I remember changing my approach of how we and you interacted based upon that. I was like, I need to make sure that he understands that if I'm going to tell him it's important, it really is important. I can't be au fait. It's got to be... It's got to be really important. I remember you taking it very seriously, and you're absolutely right. If you're not happy doing it and not taking it seriously, you shouldn't be fucking doing it. You shouldn't be doing it at all. Hmm. Coop, this has been the most chaotic episode of this show I've ever done. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, (laughs) I know we've already probably spoken for about 40 minutes on death, but technically this is the death part (laughs) of the podcast. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, (laughs) right. So... (laughs) I think what we've talked about has been incredibly deep and incredibly important. Oh, thank you. But I'm going to try and ask my standard questions. I've not done very well on it throughout (laughs) this podcast with you, mate. But the first one is, are you scared of death? Ah, the old, the the dark cloud, the shroud, the endless thing. I'm not afraid of death now, mainly because I've... Give it a lot of thought, uh, do you, and then and and then now finally I'm able to put it in its box. Usually around the thirties is when you start thinking about it, and certainly when the thought is you think about if you're going to die. Now, when I was in my twenties, I had uh, some problems with my heart, and I went into the hospital where they thought I potentially may be having some form of heart attack and problems. Good grief. So they pulled my, me in late one evening into the cardiology lounge in the uh, in the hospital. There's only six beds in that lounge because you're either staying or you're going, if you know what I mean. And so I come in, and I was still adamant that I wasn't having some form of heart attack. And they were like, well, we're going we're gonna to have to run, obviously, a battery of tests. And the guy next to me was about, about – I was in my early 30s. And the guy next to me was in his late fifties, and he'd never had any problems. And he was diagnosed as having needing to have a triple bypass. Never had any operations in his life. Bloody Nora! And I was like, and I was like, oh shit! And then there's some other lads there. But the guy opposite me came in a little bit after me, and he was a rugby player. He'd been playing rugby. There's a young lad, got to be in his early twenties, and he gets rushed in. I don't really see much of him. And the next day, uh, it transpires that he doesn't make it. He passed away, and he was he was opposite. And he was clearly, obviously, a Catholic boy. And uh, the priest comes and and goes behind the thing and obviously administers the bits and pieces that he does. And then the guy gets led away. And I'm like, oh, my, this is insanity. And then the the priest comes out and he starts working the room. So he goes from one bed to the other. And he's going to each bed going, you know, is there anything you can say to help, you know, blah, 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 do you want to talk? And and he comes to me and I'm still full of all the bravado of youth. And I'm like, it's all right, boss, you 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 walk on. No problems here. Like, you're not to see. You're not going to sell anything to me. And he goes, no problem. He goes, no problem. He goes, well, listen, I'll just tell you this. He said, there's uh, there's no atheists in a foxhole. And then off he went. No, he can fuck right off for that. That's lies. And I was like, oh, and it made me question everything. Now, here's what it is. Now, 
let's set that aside. It set my mind moving to what, like, what it meant and what he was talking about. And I come home the next day because what it turned transpired out is I actually have a condition called a tilt. It's got a long name, but it's basically a tilted heart where my heart is tilted ever so slightly, which can sometimes give the impression of a heart attack or a stroke, believe it or not. Right. And and it's it's not a great thing to have. It's a life-shortening thing to a certain degree, but it's not as serious as that poor guy next to me, Triple Bypass. I come home two days later, I think, and I'm a huge comic book fan. And so I was convalescing, and my missus bought me a load of comics. Huge fan of The Punisher. Right. One of the first comics I pick up is The Punisher, and on the front it's got some action of him shooting and what have you. And it says at the bottom of the comic, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Now, I don't know what the priest meant. I don't know what he was talking about. But what it made me think about was the whole scheme of things about God, about what I believe in, about what I don't believe in, what I do believe in. And all the roads that I fell down and rabbit holes that I went down led me to believe that they wouldn't help when I came to the end. So it's still going to be an end of some kind. Let's say there's nothing. It's like before you were born. Let's say there's pearly gates. Let's take both extremes. Let's say everything's great and it isn't. Mm. It still doesn't change that the fact that life has is in a, is, it's an end. And so I reverse engineered that. So I'm like, okay, let's say I get to 80, 90 or whatever. Great. But let's start looking at now and investing the time and doing the things that I want. Once again, negative to a positive. So instead of seeing it as being, oh my God, here's the finish line to blackness or the finish line to going up to heaven or whatever you believe, I looked the other way and I was like, okay, let's start using that then to make my life better, to be more present in the moment, to help people, to try and learn more, to be a better human being. That then when we come to the end, the line, before it goes into something else, whatever happens, I'm still going to be happy. Let's say it's the worst case scenario and there's nothing or whatever you believe in. Mm. I've still lived my life the best I could to that point. That, that's to be embraced. Say it's Pearly Gates time and or, yeah, or in my case, you probably go to, to, down the, to, the, to the red place. Then, okay, <laughs> well, make sure, make sure you've done all the right things then. And so I once I grasp that and I grasp that it doesn't really matter either way, but what does matter is the things that gone before. I became very calm about it. I think when I was rushed into the hospital, there's a calmness that I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about that when they're very close to being dead, the, there's a release. I don't have to worry about bills. I don't have to worry about work the next day. I don't have to worry about what I look like. All those hang-ups that you have and strings that are causing your tension are released. Why the why release them then? Why not release them now? You know, and, and stop worrying about the the things that you have no control over, the things that are way beyond what you can control. And let's say you do believe in one thing or you do believe in another. When you get to that point, living a well embraced life and, and and a great life is going to work out well either way. So let's concentrate on that. I'm very fond of the film Papillon. Right. Uh, and the book Papillon by uh, by Henry Cherie. And there's a line in there uh, where Steve McQueen's gets asked, he goes, you're charged with with the crime. And he was like, I, I never murdered anybody. I never, I wasn't a bad person. And he goes, no, no, no. The crime is a wasted life. How do you plead? And, he, and in his dream state, he, he goes, I plead guilty. 
and mm. and and that's that was the one thing that I I never wanted to to be able to say that you got to that moment that whatever happens that they were like well you you wasted your life and it's like oh shit that's that's the hammer blow so then like I say reversed engineer okay there's going to be an end whatever that is today tomorrow ten years twenty years whatever from that let's seek some okay we know it's going to end and move to something else let's let's get our kicks and things in let's do this now let's be a better person right now everybody's always at their end of their life, suddenly repentant and suddenly, you know, uh, looking and, and, and deep within themselves. No, I'm doing that, doing that now. And it created this wonderful thing where it took all the sting out of death, all the sting, just to keep me edging me better. No, I did learn to play chess really well in case it's the seventh seal and I've got to play chess. <laughs> so I reckon I can have him. We'll do best of three. And I reckon I've got him in the chess game. <laughs> The way you describe your attitude towards death, that's incredibly humanist and you don't need Mm. to identify as humanist to have a humanist kind of outlook on life. I've never been one of those kind of people like, you're humanist, you have to be humanist because you said a humanist thing. No, I'm never going to say that. But what I will say about that priest is I'm really, really unimpressed with that. That's incredibly pernicious and inaccurate. I think he wanted to scare me. The deep, independent research into that that the horrible assumption by people of faith that atheists will, on their deathbed, turn to God is just inaccurate and wrong. Almost without exception, there are atheists in foxholes. Yeah. Well, I took that. I took that bad information and that bad rhetoric and I turned it and I was like, okay, you know what? You're trying to say this, but what I'm going to take from it is that you will believe in something to get you through when times are hard. And I don't mean from a religious aspect. I mm. mean believing in yourself, believing in your own actions. And I I took that as... Because I've never been a big fan of, of the church and I've never been a big fan of organised religion. As Dennis Leary once said, any religion based on hat size is always, you know, got to be under some scrutiny. <laughs> I've never... It, because it's forced, because it's me as a religion forcing you and shouting at you to do something you must do this you must respect this you must believe that and we all know that if you really want to convince someone to your doctrine or your belief or your arguments you're not going to do it by shouting at them no one ever truly believes something that they've been beaten into believing and that's the biggest gaffe that the religious and catholicism has had is that the people are forced into liking it mm. and it's like well the set of beliefs that you're putting forward are really good. You know, the basics of, of most religions are based on being nice to people, helping people out, not killing someone. You know, they're all based in these great things, but it's all overshadowed with this nonsense and dogma, and it's weighed mm. down by it, of all this belief system, you know. You know, think of, like, stuff like the Quran. But people uh, who, who are uneducated to, to, to the Quran and maybe never even read it, don't understand the, the peaceful nature of things and the peaceful way of things and Buddhism and and the peaceful. They just see the headlines of like the terrorists use this and and that's because all this like this is how you should be. All religion should be is a nice guidebook that you occasionally thumb through to apply to your own life. I like that section. I like that section. I'll apply that. When it becomes total and total, it becomes control, and that's what religion and, and certainly Christianity has been used to control. And, well, they lose on forced control. They make up in fear. 
So that priest mm. is playing on the fear card. Well, he's going to come because he's scared of death now. He's had a taste of death. He's going to come. And now it's a numbers game to him. I want to get more people in my church. I want to get more people donating to my non-taxable funds, you know. And, and, hmm. and that all stinks. And it just gets in the way of, you know, religion is basically a good idea. Completely fucked up, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's really good basic principles that someone's just got, you've got, you've took this to, it's the, it look, I, I'll dive, I'll diverse to, to fucking genius here. It's Monty Python, the beginning of life of Brian and the Sermon on the Mount. And the guy's going, did he just say, blessed are the cheesemakers? And he said, well, he doesn't just mean cheesemakers. He means any factory based, whatever. And it's, it's him interpreting it. Mm. Interpretation is destroying all those religions because it forces people to do that. And that's why, you know, maybe I am, maybe that humanist side of me is, is what is what I am. But you're not, the reason you're presenting that so interestingly is that you're not labelling it, you're not saying, right, well, that's it, you are humanist or uh, whatever you are. You're not, you know, there's no power to, to do that. And then that becomes more interesting. And hold on, here's this guy that's going, okay, well, I think that probably makes you this and it probably puts you in this camp. And that's great. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like anything, veganism where you, people are like, you know, a lot more people would probably go vegetarian if vegan and, and, and vegetarians didn't force people to feel that way. And, mm. um, you know, it's it, it's it's people forcing an opinion that doesn't won't get listened to. Couldn't agree more. And that's very dangerous. People need to find their religion or not or find their way of doing things. And every single person is different. And you don't have to believe one dogma and diatribe over another and adopt it completely. You don't. There's no rules to that. Uh, the rules have been created by the government and by by religious sort of mandates. Then it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I'll keep it metal, and I will say that you know in the the Machine Head song Davidian, he said if Jesus Christ came down today, he'd be shot, and and that's probably very true. Yeah. Um, religion's fought. It's out of control. It's out of control. So let's talk about your funeral. Let's move on from the deep religious <laughs> debates. So, do you want to be buried or cremated? I'm going to go with cremation. I'm not one of those people that uh, believes that you know, the body parts should be used for various things and you, you've got to go total over to the other place. I made that decision a long time ago where it's like, listen, you know, take what you need. Whatever's on the next thing is fine. You know what I mean? I'd like to see the, the interesting situation and if I give my kidneys to someone who's dying... You go up to heaven and you haven't got your kidneys. And like, oh, no, we've just been through here. Uh, you've not got any kidneys. Sorry, lad. Where'd you go? Do you go to hell? Because you go to hell. And he's like, what are you down here for? And he goes, well, I, I've done everything good, but I just didn't have any kidneys. And he's like, well, it's not a big crime, that, mate. Well, where do we go? Well, you'll probably just have to sit in limbo, then, I guess. But no, I'm not really one of those people who hangs out. Uh, so cremation's probably the way forward for me. That's, yeah. I don't, the only thing that would stop me maybe getting cremated is I want to be cremated with a guitar. And I don't think they allow electronic items in the fairness the stuff they don't allow isn't it in theory you're not supposed to put anything in the furnace whatsoever other than a person and um people do sneak stuff in and it causes problems because you're not meant to put wine or alcohol are they yeah there was a the, the guy was telling me that there's someone put in like a, a hip flask of whiskey or something and it caused a flare-up in the um in the, the oven or the, the furnace or whatever it is. That's exactly And that caused it. A, a genuine problem. And I was like, that's insane. The way they do it is they take the weight of the body, the weight of the coffin, 
and for environmental reasons and also time constraint reasons, they take that weight and they do a calculation with the advanced technology that we now have in crematoriums. And they know the exact temperature, the exact amount of flaminess. I'm sure there's a more technical term than flaminess. (laughs) Um, But basically, they do this complicated mathematical calculation. But And if you put in a guitar and not told the funeral director, that won't be taken into account and it won't burn the body properly. So that's why you can't put stuff in when you're getting cremated. I'm going to have to go through the list of stuff that I want in a coffin because the guitar's in there. And I'm like, I, that might decide. That might decide it. I like the idea. I like the idea of of having ashes that are scattered somewhere. I like that as well. Um, mainly because, actually, not for me, but for the person who's left behind, to kind of help them. I like that. I like the idea of a, a location, not necessarily a grave, where someone can go and go. You know what? For a couple of minutes, I'm going to think about that person. And you know what? I'm happy with my life, and 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 that's it. And so I like the idea of that. That, yeah, I think I think I think I will st- I, listen. I'll figure it out. I'll I'll either kind of give the fucking crematorium a little you know, backhander or whatever. A bit of listen to guitar. <laughs> you know, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. I have to work with people. I'll figure it out. But I think yeah, definitely crematorium. Yeah, <laughs> mainly because of the two films that I enjoy the most. One's Diamonds Are Forever, and there's a scene where James Bond, Sean Connery, gets actually put to crematorium. And I think that that's fantastic. That scene, and also um, Return of the Living Dead. And I think that's ace, you know. So I like that. But it's it's very metal to get um, to go to a crematorium. So I have to I have to fly the metal flag for that. Then mm, I mean, I always say I say quite often how much I'd like a biker's funeral because of the procession oh, of the fantastic, the fantastic. Yeah, the the whole procession of the bikes, and then you fill a crematorium full of leather clad beardy fellas, and yes! you know, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the other thing is that no no person who's coming to the funeral is wearing any kind of suit and tie. That's a fucking that by a, absolutely certain of everybody has to wear some kind of band t shirt like Excellent. a like a Iron Maiden or Metallica or, or Slayer or something like that. Every, and that's what you get. I've been to a couple of um, biker funerals and they're very much like an on land Viking funeral. Mm. There's a wonderful rough pageantry to it. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Fantastic, and uh, they, they really do know to, how to, to say goodbye to their own. Yeah. So, what reading would you like at your funeral? Have you thought about that? Yeah, uh, there was a couple of things I quite like, but I would probably write it myself, being that egotistical and, and so far up my own arse. I would probably, well, I'd be one step away from having that television wheeled on, someone pressing a button, and me doing that. What, like at school? Hey, yeah, hey, how are you? Just, be, just before we watch the, the next movie, um, I'm dead now, and this is me saying blah 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 because I'd, 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 I'd always want to headline my own show. You know, I probably would. I, I would saying that I'd probably have something written from uh, some of the the books that I like, like Papillon. Probably mm. some things from there's some passages from that. I, I very much enjoy, like you know. So I probably write it myself, and someone would will probably read it. Maybe something from Henry Rollins. He, he's a, a, very much a, someone I enjoy. Some of the stuff he's write, wrote, uh, certainly about the business. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably write something yourself rather than have a chapter or a verse or something from something mm. pre-designed like yeah. And I've had that before at one of my funerals where a lady wrote a letter to her family, and the first they heard it 
was actually in the ceremony. I didn't show them that as part of the draft of the script. Oh, yes. Yeah, and then that gets it maximum, in a good way, gets the maximum effect mm. then. It's mm. like them actually being, well, it's as close as you can to them actually being in the room, uh, which is fabulous. It's fabulous. Oh, that was great. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably write my own thing. Like, So, I think this is maybe the most important question for you. What music tracks would you select for the entrance, <laughs> the reflection, and the exit during your funeral? So the the entrance music, one hundred percent, with without a doubt, is a great gig in the sky by Pink Floyd. Perfect. It's, it's simple. It's it's simple. There's no there's no there's no decision over that. Then it would be the reflection sort of thing would be a song by a very famous guitar player called Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. And he plays a song called uh, Where Were You? And it's an instrument. And it's quite, quite beautiful. When uh, Richard Wright, uh, the guy that uh, passed away, who was the keyboardist in Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. he had Jeff Beck actually play that at his funeral. It's a quite, I would say, anybody needs to check it out. It's not metal. It's it's lovely. And uh, then I would have that slightly C, because it's quite a short piece of music, into there's an album called uh, In My Life by George Martin, who produced the Beatles. And he got a load of people to guest on there and do Beatles songs. And there's a, a piece of music where it's Sean Connery, God rest his soul, reading In My Life. And it's beautiful. It's quite beautiful. But the song that I'd want to be played at the the, the end is a, uh, a Joni Mitchell song, if you can believe that, mm. uh, for the metal guy. And it's a song called uh, Real Good for Free. And it's one of my favourite songs of all time. And what it is, is it's a song about Joni Mitchell being very famous, walking around town and seeing some guy playing the uh, the clarinet or the saxophone uh, on a street corner, being absolutely superb and only earning small change. And then her having to go to a show, playing in front of thousands for a lot of money and being maybe not even as good as that guy. Mm. And it's a beautiful, beautiful song about self-worth about re- reflecting on your own ability and your own place in the world and the realization that success is is merely addressing you know that life is is far more deeper than i've earned a lot of money a lot of people like me that type of thing it's a very much and i'd want people to reflect on that that if i did end and i was particularly famous or had a lot of money that i didn't consider it very important and it's a song called real good for free it's a beautiful song amazing stuff Wonderful choices. And then Slayer's Hell Awaits. And then Slayer. <laughs> oh, you had to ruin it. And then Slayer Hell Awaits. I've got to be aware, Mark, that there's metal people listening, and I just blew my metal cards by suggesting three songs that I haven't even got distorted guitars in. I'll be getting murdered by... I'll have to turn in my metal card in. No, that's not pretty metal. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure your metal card is safe for the rest of your life, mate. <laughs> Well, Coop, it has been a joy and batshit crazy to talk to you. But again, I guess that's always been the case. As advertised. (laughs) Where can people find you on the internet? I'm on all the uh, the socials, as they say. Uh, It is the Spoken Metal Show. Why is it the Spoken Metal Show? It's because I don't play metal. I am not uh, performing metal. I am speaking metal or straight fire, as they say. The Spoken Metal Show. There you go. Yeah, so if you've listened to Life's Milestones on whatever your favourite format is, you can listen to the Spoken Metal show on there. 
Anything else that you want to get off your chest, although we have talked for nearly two hours, anything else you want to say before we disappear, mate? Is that, is, is that the record? Have I, have I beaten the record? Yes, good. That I, As far as I'm concerned, we, that's a case closed now. I, I, we're good. I, I think, ladies and gentlemen, we need to get Mark on because we want to talk to Mark on the Spoken Metal Show. I just about music. Because one of the things that Marcus is very well spoken about stuff and, and really erudite about stuff, so I think we'll probably get him on my show too, and that'll be that'll be good. A bit different, but all right, why not? Yeah, no, no, that's why I like embrace that, embrace that. I would definitely say as well, anybody listening needs to check out the whole gaunt of of what Mark's done because there's some great stuff there, uh, fabulous stuff. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate. It. Do you know what? It's just been nice to catch up with you, Mark. I don't see you. In the, in the same circles that I used to, and I really enjoyed the uh, the banter, and I really enjoyed the, the the to and fro that we had a lot. Mm. And this has been fantastic. This is this is fun for me. What an enjoyable way to spend the Sunday afternoon. It's fantastic. Coop, thank you so much for being on Life's Milestones, mate. Thank you very much, sir. I just want to say one more thank you to Coop for joining me for a Life's Milestones interview. He is a man who never fails to brighten up my day with his banter, with his chat and with his just coolness. He's one of those guys that he's cool, but he's also your mate and you just, you know what I mean. And before I go, I will touch on the fact, yes, at the time of this being broadcast, Manchester, the city I live in, has gone into tier four. So no naming ceremonies, only emergency deathbed weddings and very limited funerals. It isn't the start that we wanted to 2021 and 2020 was a, frankly, crap year. However, all these things aren't going to last. I am looking forward to the vaccination getting spread around the UK and getting back to normal and I'm really looking forward to being able to do my job properly in the year to come so I do want to wish everyone a happy new year and all the best for the year to come once we've got over this last hurdle thank you so much for listening to Life's Milestones I'll see you in a fortnight Life's Milestones is a podcast on the We Made This Podcast Network The show's host is me, Mark Adams. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MarkAdamsHC. You can also find me on Facebook. Just search for Mark Adams Humanist Celebrant. My website is humanist.org.uk forward slash Mark Adams. Regular listeners to the podcast can claim a 10% discount on my fees for a naming ceremony or wedding. Just make sure you quote milestones when you get in touch. The theme tune for Life's Milestones is performed by Zach Reagan and the logo was created by Carl Bryan. Follow the show on Twitter at Life's Milestones. Thank you for listening. Elsewhere. We made this. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. I actually thought Shaken Back was like a dated reference until I went into a pound shop about six months ago. I've got some Shaken Back in my cupboard. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pound shop.
I honestly, I honestly had in my notes it, that dates it. I didn't know that. I did not know that. I mean, so I'm gonna have to buy some. But what would you do to bring the freshness back, Mark? If you, if, well, if, that's if, the if, thing. I haven't done it yet, but I believe that if I do the shaken back, I'll put the freshness back. The movie palace. I was just kind of wondering how you became aware of of Joan Harrison. Yeah, I'm someone who is as intrigued as anybody by Alfred Hitchcock. You know, I've certainly read everything I could get my hands on about Hitchcock and seen a lot of his movies. So I would put myself in that camp as being someone who really is uh, a Hitchcock connoisseur. I, you know, <laughs> um, not to flatter myself, but somebody who really enjoys his movies. But I, you know, I, I began to see that there's so many women that have influenced his career. Time is now, a Millennium podcast. Yeah, I think when we get to Skull and Bones, the the final scene in, in that one where he's um, he, he gives his his reasons to Emma, I think that has been criticised quite much. But then obviously we we'll look at we'll look at Peter Watts over the course of the oh, season. Oh, but, that, say, see, so. but that's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Because I mean, how many times you know that's that's what people in his position say. Yeah. It's like, oh, you hate me and you think I'm doing bad, but you know when the food runs out, you know. Who are you going to blame? That, that that goes back to three days of the Condor, right? Yeah, yeah. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Mm-hmm.